Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Malaria is on the ropes. Since the year 2000 and the launch of the Millennium Development Goals, malaria deaths have nearly halved worldwide. This is a huge accomplishment for humanity considering the sheer toll it's inflicted over the centuries. Still, despite the progress, malaria has claimed over half a million lives last year and sickened millions more. This Saturday, April 25th, is World Malaria Day, so I thought I would catch up with Martin Edlund of Malaria No More to have a bit of a stock-taking about the progress we've made against malaria and the challenges ahead. What surprised me most about this conversation was that Martin is now credibly talking about total worldwide eradication of malaria. Now, it may not happen in the next few years, but for reasons Martin explains, eradication is now within the realm of possibility. In the conversation you're about to hear, Martin describes how countries and regions have been able to eliminate malaria and why drug-resistant strains of malaria, especially in the Mekong Delta region, are particularly worrisome. This is a great conversation and a good example of the kind of wonky yet accessible expert interview on a topical global issue, perhaps off the radar of the mainstream press. I post these every Thursday. Every Monday, we post longer conversations with global affairs thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and intellectual development. And if you are into global health, you might like my conversation with Jeff Sachs, Helene Gale, or Nick Kristoff. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and check out the archives. And here it is, my conversation with Martin Edlund of Malaria No More. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So it, it's funny, just last night we had an event with President George W. Bush in Dallas uh, looking back at the progress. And, you know, in 2000, when, when he was elected and took office, the world had largely given up on the malaria fight. Uh, international funding for malaria was at about $100 million, uh, and we weren't tracking closely what countries were spending themselves. Uh, deaths were estimated at about a million uh, a year or, or slightly more, of course, among pregnant women and, and kids. And there was really, you know, not a lot of momentum to speak of. Uh, and as we celebrate this year, you know, World Malaria Day, uh, the final World Malaria Day of the Millennium Development Goals, the 10th anniversary of the U.S. President's Malaria Initiative, uh, we're also celebrating the one billionth mosquito net that's gone out for free in Africa since the year 2000. Uh, it's it's really been a, a total sea change. Um, you know, we've in many ways turned the tide against this disease. Uh, deaths have have fallen by uh, over 50 percent in Africa. Uh, you know, we've seen 4.3 million lives saved, 670 million cases avoided, thanks to some you know some some really straightforward 
um, uh, tools and approaches uh, that have, that have uh, demonstrated success early on and, and then benefited from the world community rallying behind them and, and expanding them. So uh, was, was so, the event uh, sort of honoring George W. Bush? It was. So, yeah, I mean, was, you know, the global health community, I think, has coalesced around the idea that PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, was a game changer in the fight against AIDS. What effect did the president's malaria initiative have? I mean, so, so the success to date, um, I'd say, was sparked by a few things. Certainly the establishment of the Rollback Malaria Partnership and the commitment we saw from African leaders. But then there were really two big funding streams that came online. And I have to apologize for the siren in the background here. Uh, but two big funding streams. First, the Global Fund uh, in you know, 2003, 2004, and then the U.S. President's Malaria Initiative, or PMI, uh, in 2005. And PMI is unique in a, a few ways. Uh, first of all, it started with some very ambitious but simple goals. Uh, starting in, in nine countries, the goal was to uh, reduce by half the burden of malaria in the space of five years. Uh, and, you know, as, as people like to say about President Bush, he's a details guy, and he wants to know who's accountable uh, and, and who's going to get the job done, and then he kind of tracks those details. And, and we've seen that really infuse the program from the beginning. Um, you know, they've, they've worked hand-in-hand hand, uh, with uh, the, the country governments in which they're operating. They've delivered uh, tools, measured results, and they've seen really remarkable impact. And did, think, those, did those countries meet their targets? Uh, yeah, um, uh, many, if not all of them, uh, exceeded the targets. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been an out-and-out -out success. And, and I think a, a spark in the malaria community similar to what PEPFAR was in the fight against HIV-AIDS. Um, so around the world today, where is the burden for malaria heaviest? What countries are we talking about? So almost 90% of the, the burden is still in Africa, uh, certainly in terms of the mortality and, and kind of the, the worst impacts of the disease. Um, although Asia is an increasingly urgent focus for a couple of reasons. One, because we're seeing uh, drug-resistant malaria emerging there, uh, that it's now in five countries in the Mekong region. Uh, and if history is any guide, uh, resistance starts there, it spreads to India, and then can spread to Africa. And so there's the concern that we could lose our frontline treatment against malaria in the countries that are hardest hit. The other opportunity in Asia is, is at the last year's East Asia Summit, uh, 18 countries committed to eliminate malaria in the region by 2030. So there's a big momentum play and, and opportunity to shrink the map in a considerable way in Asia. But Africa remains where the bulk of the cases are, the bulk of the deaths are. And so that's where the, the main focus is in terms of the world's international financing. Um, so on on the the advent and the the rise of drug resistant malaria, I mean, this is something I see kind of perking up in news reports every now and again. Does this mean that like the 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 regular treatments like you know nefloquine and and others just are are not are basically useless against these strains? And like what what happens if someone is you know infected with this kind of strain? Yeah, so the, the drug that's most concerning uh, is artemisinin. Uh, mm -hmm. Artemisinin is the core component of the frontline treatment for, for malaria cases and, and all of the ACTs uh, that are used around the world. Uh, so what we've seen is in five countries, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Thailand, and Vietnam, 
uh, there's some evidence of drug resistance. What they measure is um, when they administer the drug, how quickly does it clear the parasites in the body and, and does it manage to, to clear them all? And so you're seeing in a growing number of, of patients in those countries that the clear times are slowing and in some cases it's not clearing the parasite altogether. Uh, so it's, it's a huge concern, um, both because it undermines our ability to uh, get rid of the parasite, which is, of course, a prerequisite for elimination and meeting the goals uh, that, that Asia set for itself at the East Asia Summit, uh, and also because it, it means that uh, people may not recover uh, as quickly or recover at all. Uh, so the, probably the big, more expensive treatment too, right? Uh, so artemisinin is, is, is the main treatment now. It's down to a dollar or less per mm -hmm. full course of treatment. So but if you're resistant to artemisinin? Uh, sorry, what's the question? If 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 uh, artemisinin is not able to treat uh, someone, then I would imagine that the second line treatments are, are more expensive. If there are yeah. second line treatments, yeah. I mean, the reality is we don't we don't have great second line treatments. Um, the pipeline is bursting with with new drug combinations, and we're you know a couple of years away from seeing a, a whole new wave of them. But the you know the the doomsday scenario is if if drug resistant spread rapidly now. Uh, you would have hundreds of millions of people uh, at severe risk of severe malaria and death. Uh, and you take a number that's been shrinking dramatically in terms of malaria deaths and see that uh, you know, re really grow uh, you know, three, or, three or four fold, uh, which would be a humanitarian disaster. And it would really make uh, a lot of the other issues that we look at, certainly something like Ebola, seem really modest by comparison. Is Resistance, does resistance arise because of misuse of, of current drugs? And I know that you know, the malaria community is focusing a lot in recent years on the availability of rapid diagnostic tests. Um, is there, I guess, a concern that people are being like prescribed malaria drugs when they just have a common flu or something? Yeah, so um, the, the exact dynamics of resistance are, are complex, as you might imagine. Uh, it... it um, it seems to emerge in the Thai-Cambodia border most often, and typically it's attributed to a few factors coming together. Uh, first is the fact that you have too many low-quality or uh, monotherapy drugs. Uh, so typically when these things are, are done well, they're administered as combinations. So even if there's uh, a strain that's resistant to one drug, you've got a second or, or third drug there that's going to help to to eliminate that parasite and prevent the spread of resistance. So low-quality drugs don't achieve that. Uh, secondly, you have a lot of itinerant populations, uh, which means people may take a single pill, but they don't finish their three-day course of treatments. Uh, so you have a lot of people with just a trace amount of the drugs in their system. Uh, and then, ironically, one of the other factors that leads to resistance is in Asia you have typically um, populations with, with very uh, low exposure to the parasite. So, the, so uh, unlike in Africa where you're repeatedly, repeatedly infected with malaria and you develop a, a natural resistance which allows the body to effectively fight the parasite, you don't have that in Asia. Uh, and so it makes the entire community much more susceptible to, um, to, to resistance developing um, and, then, and then spreading, of course. Um, so when we opened the interview, you talked about uh, pretty, you know, impressive and, and you know, seemingly humanity uh, 
affirming progress in the fight against malaria over the last you know, 15, 16 years or so. Can you just talk about a specific country or maybe region uh, in that's, that's actually been able to eliminate malaria over the last 15 years and talk about sort of what programs they implemented to achieve that goal? Sure. Uh, we, we've seen tremendous progress uh, r- really around the world. Uh, but one of the areas that we're excited about is is Asia Pacific. Uh, Sri Lanka just celebrated its uh, second year without any malaria transmission. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, they've eliminated, though it's something that we monitor very closely. Uh, places like South Korea and Bhutan uh, are, are very close to eliminating. And then a number of countries have set uh, really aggressive targets to eliminate by 2020, such as Bangladesh, China, the Philippines, Malaysia. Uh, so lots, lots of progress across the region. And, you know, the way that they get that done is, is through really good data, first of all. Uh, you can't get towards elimination if you don't know where your malaria is and, and how to stamp it out. And then in the, you know, in the late stages, it's, it's really about identifying and responding to every case. Uh, so there's almost a SWAT team approach when a malaria case crops up. Uh, you go in and, and you treat it. You test the people in the surrounding area and treat any cases, and then you monitor it to make sure that there isn't a spread. Um, I guess, though, it seems that the countries that you mentioned are, are relatively wealthier uh, than the countries, you know, like obviously South Korea is a wealthy, it's a developed country. Sri Lanka is, is yeah. fairly, you know, wealthier compared to like Laos or other countries in, in the Mekong Delta. Um, is, is there, I guess, just this correlation between the ability of a country to defeat malaria and its, you know, relative GDP? Certainly. Um, you know, we talk about malaria as both a cause and a consequence of poverty. And so as, as countries have more resources uh, and, and they're able to, to deploy them, uh, they, you know, they accelerate more quickly uh, towards elimination. Um, but one of the things that we're seeing, particularly in Asia with the, the emergence of drug resistance, is the world sitting up and taking notice and, and starting to mobilize funding. So we're seeing the President's Malaria Initiative, the Global Fund, the Asian Development Bank, uh, and in, an increasing number of, of countries in the region stepping up and, and helping to accelerate progress in those places where it's hardest to make the progress, uh, like the Mekong, like uh, Indonesia and India. Is the burden of malaria um, unevenly spread out between rural and urban uh, urban areas in in some of these countries, like you know many other diseases? It is. Um, you know, typically we talk about malaria as a disease of the rural poor, uh, and you know that owes to a few things. One, you know, cities are often built uh, in places where you don't have as many mosquitoes. Right, they're at higher elevations or away from kind of swamps or or wetlands. Um, and so part of it's just the natural kind of choice of, of where, where cities tend to grow up. Uh, but of course, in rural areas, you also have um, sometimes uh, less access to, to health care. Um, and so, you know, people are, are less likely to seek treatment and, and get rid of the parasite in their bodies. Also, as, as people move into urban centers, they tend to have more screen windows. There tends to be less standing water and, and uh, breeding grounds for mosquitoes. So it's a, a mix of both kind of geographic um, uh, health infrastructure issues and, and then just urbanization and, and the realities of kind of modern city, city living. I mean, I guess finally, how realistic is the prospect of, of worldwide elimination of malaria? 
um, you know, like some other diseases, like polio is on the verge of, of elimination and, and eradication. What, uh, you know, is that something that you in, in the malaria community even sort of think about or even even sort of identify as a potential target? Yeah, you know, uh, 15 years ago in 2000, if you had talked about malaria eradication, which is elimination everywhere on the planet, uh, people would have laughed you out of the room. Uh, just was not on the radar as a as a realistic goal at that time. Uh, fast forward 15 years, and we've we've cut the burden by 50 percent. We see unprecedented political will and funding, and we're looking at a pipeline of tools that is probably the most promising in any uh, global health space. And so it does have the community uh, really bullish about the progress that we can make. Um, this include a potential vaccine. It includes, yeah, it includes a variety of things. One, uh, hypersensitive rapid diagnostic tests, which can find even low levels of the parasite, which you need to find and root out if, if you want to make eradication a possibility. Uh, there's some treatments coming along that we call radical cure treatments. So with a single course of medicine, you get rid of every parasite, every stage of the parasite in the body, which is a huge help. And then, of course, transmission-blocking vaccines. So if you once you're vaccinated, you're not going to have a mosquito bite you, pick up the parasite, and take it on to someone else. Uh, really shuts down the, the kind of spread of the disease. So between the progress, uh, the political will and momentum, and then these exciting new tools, uh, there, there's uh, a lot of conversation about eradication being uh, realistic and achievable in our lifetimes. And just to, to say, if we were to do that, it would be a massive accomplishment. Uh, you know, there's a strong argument to make that malaria is the most destructive disease in human history. Uh, killed more people and, and cost us more in terms of productivity than any other disease out there. So the fact that we can talk credibly about eradicating this in our lifetimes is really a, a huge, huge thing. Uh, I guess uh, just to, to wrap up, so we're going to post this on Thursday before Saturday, which is World Malaria Day. What's your big you know, message to the world community for, for World Malaria Day? What, what are you guys at Malaria No More trying to, to push on this day? Yeah, so the big thing for us is uh, to, to pat the world on the back. Um, you know, as, as the MDGs draw to a close, uh, we've made historic progress against this disease, really uh, progress that nobody could have anticipated back in the year 2000. Uh, but as we've seen time and again with malaria, if you take your eye off of it, uh, it comes roaring back. You know, we've had 75 documented instances of resurgence in the last 85 years. And so uh, you can't just finish the job halfway with malaria. We need to keep this going and ultimately uh, eradicate this disease if we want to make sure that it's, uh, that it's not going to come back and, and uh, continue to be a threat. All right. Well, Martin, thank you so much for your time and good luck. Thanks very much, Mark. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to subscribe on iTunes, get the app, Check out our deep and robust archives of previous conversations on global health, international development, and all manner of worldly topics. Bye.